Mindfulness Mode 454. And it must have hurt me terribly, but more than anything, I was in such a state of shock because I guess I thought I would be blind forever. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode. Great to have you back. Today, I am going to just tell you that I have a 12-minute meditation that you can download. It's to help you be alert and be more focused in the mornings after you wake up. You can feel invigorated. You'll feel fresh and dynamic. You can download this free guided meditation at mindfulnessmode.com slash awaken with focus. Now today, I am talking with a guest who has been working to help people in the area of addictions for many years. And after all of this time working with people, she has concluded that self-sabotage is just part of our human condition and that we all have attachments that we would just simply be better off without. So she talks in the interview about different kinds of addictions and how challenging they are to, to shake. And it's just pretty fascinating to talk with this guest. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with Dr. Ellie Katz. You know what? Addiction is such a tragic thing that so many people have to deal with. And I'm here with a person who is helping people deal with addiction for years. I'm here with Dr. Ellie Katz. Dr. Katz, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am indeed. You and I are in mindfulness mode. That's fantastic. Dr. Ellie Katz has worked four years, like I said, in the field of addiction, and she's concluded that self-sabotage is just part of the human condition. She believes every one of us have attachments that we'd be better off without. Dr. Katz is a leading practitioner of holistic psychotherapy, and her eclectic interventions have featured innovation innovative approaches to using meditation, guided thinking, and we're going to talk about this, the Bach Flower Remedies. She's lectured at various universities and has been a senior staff member at uh, the Retorno Rehab Faculty uh, since 2003. And I guess that would be the Retorno Rehab Facility, wouldn't it? So, Dr. Katz, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, I know that you're a meditator. What does mindfulness mean to you, Dr. Katz? Well, before it got popularized and we all read Titnatan and washing the dishes while we're washing the dishes and aware of that, um, mindfulness means not falling asleep at the wheel of your life. Yes. Yeah. Pay attention. So that you don't all the time go to sleep at night saying, what did I say? What did I do? What was I thinking? Things of that nature. I mean, we shock ourselves by stupidity. And that's why I wrote the book, When Sane People Do Insane Things. And our lives are full of grudge holding and revenge and obsessions and anxiety and look look how not 
healthy that is. And obviously, you need to self-soothe. And often that turns into an addiction. I need that cigarette. I need that drink. I need that cocktail hour. I need to smoke that joint. Oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. or whatever. I need to be on the internet for hours. I need to chat with imaginary friends. And so should we replace those habits with something healthier? Is that the best way to look at it? Well, I think so. I mean, unfortunately, I've seen interesting manifestations of trading addictions. So we don't really want to replace them. We want to alleviate the need, the pain, the, the frustration of your life that takes you back again and again to the insane. So the counterproductive, insane patterns, phobias, obsessions, habits that are, if you think about them, embarrassing. Yes. Yeah. Nothing to be proud of, but uh, a very, very big part of life is serving that devil inside of you that tells you, do this, do this, it'll help, it'll make you feel better, it'll be fun. That's kind of what people do, and that's how they think, and that's why they go time and time again to the nasty place. Right. Right. When did you first start helping people who were saddled with addictions? Well, I was originally trained in psychology. When I got my doctorate, it was more theoretical psychology. And when I was pregnant with my fourth child, I had kind of a spiritual awakening. And I realized that what's more important in the whole world for me, my true nature and purpose is to help people. So that happened 35 years ago. I've been in the, in the field. I went back to university and got another degree and then got involved in all of the broad, broad field of natural medicine, alternative therapies. So I studied the Bach flower remedies, as you said, and the aromatherapy and reflexology and the biochemistry of medicinal herbs. And all of this is integrated into my holistic psychotherapy. Well, I know the Bach flower remedies are uh, pretty interesting treatments for people. Can you tell us what those are? Well, it's a marvelous for me, inexplicable, magical, gorgeous miracle of an approach that is actually not so complicated. Obviously, anything in the hands of an intelligent person is, of course, richer than in the hands of a fool or someone who's limited. And I bet you know that from being a music teacher. Yes. There's the instrument, and then there's knowing what to do with the instrument or whatever. Yes. So um, if you were to look in my book, When Sane People Do Insane Things, I, I explore and explain each one of the 38 flower remedies. And some of them are very, very clear. I mean... My, my career with Bach Flower Remedies started when 
oddly enough, in one week, two mothers told me that they had daughters who were waking up in the night, screaming, had bad dreams, were terrorized and upsetting the whole house. And I had just, I mean, if you believe in God, you'd know this, I suppose, just read about such cases in the Bach flower remedies. And I told each woman, I'm just starting out in this. I have no idea if this is going to work. Slip it in your kid's water, orange juice, or cocoa. And let's see. Let's see. Both mothers came to me within the week and said this miraculously stopped when I gave something for extreme terror and fear in the night. I thought, wow, you know, specifying a particular kind of fear was so very, very precious to me. For example, there's a Bach flower remedy for having excessive worry over the welfare of another person. It's uh-huh. so specific. Wow. Wow. And Mindful Tribe, this is B-A-C-H, Bach Flower Remedies. It was invented by someone named Edward Bach, who is a medical doctor and homeopath. Can it help people with their addictions? Oh, of course. All of the patients here are given an opportunity to meet with my colleague and sit down and work something out. A lot of people are help with their post-trauma. In other words, it's not only about the addiction. We're treating the reason that you're addicted or the results of your addiction. A lot of times in psychology, you're focusing more on why than the results. Look what being addicted has done to you, what you've exposed yourself to, what... uh, dangerous situations you agreed to enter and that's where i am food can be an addiction and i know that you've written a book which was about food it was called my last summer as a fat girl my last (laughs) summer as a fat girl were you a fat girl um i was pretty heavy not, I was never obese. I didn't get there, and I never was anorexic. I didn't get there, but I was always heavier than I wanted to be, and it started out uh, very early in my life. I had a trauma when I was five. I had a double strabismus operation. I was cross-eyed, and I woke up in a hospital at five, which is a reasonable age of a thinker, and my both eyes are bandaged. And this is in the early 1950s, Bruce, Mm -hmm. where people stayed in the hospital. So I had bandaged eyes in the hospital for a substantial amount of time. My mother said after that, forget it. I was an eating machine and a makeup story person, which is a euphemism for tall tales. So were you in the hospital for several days then? Oh, I would think a week to 10 days. And did your mother visit you during that time in the hospital? No, my mother didn't visit me. She sent her Aunt Jenny. She had a spinster aunt named Aunt Jenny, and Aunt Jenny was there. My mother couldn't bear the idea of seeing me in such a state. She wouldn't know how to handle it. And did you feel isolated and alone, the fact that your mother wasn't coming to see you? 
I don't have any conscious awareness of that. It would make sense when we think about that. I noticed it and it must have hurt me terribly, but more than anything, I was in such a state of shock because I guess I thought I would be blind forever. Uh-huh. And and then you were able to see, and then you started eating after that, and, and then you gained a lot of weight, I'm assuming. Yes, I was, by the time I was 10, I was very, very big. We moved from one house to another. Nobody told me we were moving. I went to camp and came home. I was 10 in a new town, a good head taller than everybody else. I was very developed at 10. I wasn't so fat, but I was some kind of monstrosity. And the new friends called me Smelly Ellie, the Uh, cootie bug. Wow. Yeah, it was horrible. That must have been uh, pretty devastating. And were you bullied then as a result of that? Welcome to my universe. You bet I was. Yeah. It was called names and... uh, it actually shaped my character. It's interesting. It had a very big effect on me being bullied like that. Did you become any kind of bully back in order to survive? No, never. No. Never. But what's interesting is by the time I was 16, six years later in Scarsdale, New York, I had developed a persona that they all called me the Earth Mother. Oh. See, something good came out of the bullying. I developed tremendous empathy and compassion for the entire universe. And it sounds like you moved quite a bit then as a kid. Is that right? No, no. We just moved from one place to another. My parents lived there till their death. But no, no, no. I wasn't uprooted more than that one time. I see. But that must have been pretty... Pretty devastating to come home from camp and find that you had moved to a new home. Right. It was. And I truly was not informed. Wow. It was pretty vicious. I know that we can learn more about you at elliecats.com. Your website is E-L-L-I-E-K-A-T-Z.com elliecats.com. Wow, you've had quite a fascinating life. And when did you decide that you wanted to uh, go into the field of, of healing and helping people? And was that the beginning when people started to call you the Earth Mother? Well, that was the kind of persona I adopted. And I didn't do it in a formal or professional way. That came, as I said, when I was pregnant with my fourth child. Before that, I was teaching in the university for years and years and years. And uh, it, it really didn't dawn on me to formally get training as a psychologist that does the clinical work. Actually, when I began my studies, I opened my doors to anyone in Israel who had lost their vision. I did family therapy for people who were visually handicapped and had undergone a change from being visual to blind. I see. That touched me. Remember, I had the eye operation and I was very, very sensitized to visual handicap. 
Now, after you had that operation, did you ever have any trouble visually or any problem with your eyes in any way? Not until a couple of years ago when I had cataract surgery and the second eye was done without giving me any uh, tranquilizer. And when they came at me, I almost dropped dead. Wow. It was so frightening. Why did they do it that way? I can't tell you. It was laser surgery and it was so frightening. I, I almost died. Did they forget to give you the tranquilizer? Well, possibly because I'm so cheerful and adorable. <laughs> Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking they just got sidetracked and forgot to uh, either anesthetize me, tranquilize me or whatever. You know, they figured she can handle it. Uh-huh. Forget it. Horrible. So let's talk some more about habits. Have you ever had habits in your life that you had to systematically go about removing or changing? I used to suck my thumb. That started also, by the way, my mom said from the uh, time of the eye surgery at five, I never sucked my thumb before. Anyway, I sucked my thumb till the summer that I was 15. Oh, 15, Bruce. Wow. I went to a camp for overweight girls. Oh. And in the bed next to me was a young lady considerably fatter than I. Uh-huh. And I heard her making noises all night, moving her hand up to her head, her hand up to her head. And the next morning I said, Doris, what, what were you doing? In the night, she said, oh, I used to scratch my head and I was hypnotized to stop doing it. And I thought, "Uh oh, this place is for crazy people. I better stop sucking my thumb. Uh I'm here ostensibly because I want to lose 20 pounds this summer. But there are crazy people here. I better not be a thumb sucker at 15. And I really used my logic in that response to stop the habit. Hmm. Well, I know logic can really help people to do a lot of things. I know that, that my son is motivated by logic. And if something doesn't make sense, it just is almost impossible for him to decide to, to do it or, you know, to convince him. But if it's logically sound, then it's a no brainer. He just totally believes in that. So that sounds like you're the same way. Well, but I can say that in treating addiction, logic has no place, no place whatsoever. In treating people who are chronically depressed, they will tell you, obviously, they're not doing this on purpose. Logic has no power in the face of the crazy, illogical, bang your head against the wall, time after time. Bruce, I have heroin addicts who overdosed, practically dropped dead, and the next day were shooting up again. Where's the logic there? Where's the logic there? Insane. I have half of the men that I work with, I've been here at the rehab for 17 years, half the men that I work with today are not heroin addicts, not alcoholics, they're gamblers. Uh Talk about, it's not a substance abuse, but they're gamblers 
and they have lied and cheated and weaseled people out of money because ultimately when you're a gambler, you're not gambling your own money and there isn't any more money. So you're gambling someone's house away. You're gambling someone's vacation away. It's outrageous. So has gambling become a much bigger problem than it ever was? Yes, without a doubt. And what's fascinating is this kind of gambling often is the lottery. You're just scratching a card. Right. You're scratching a card and you're waiting around, hanging around the place to find out if this was your lucky day. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. People want to kill you. And you're still doing that. Where's the logic? Right. And it's an addiction that not everybody sees as harmful, right? Yeah. Well, if you're married to it or you're the, the, yeah. Then you understand. I used to play the piano a lot in different kinds of establishments. And I, I remember some of the places where I would play. There was a place I played on a Saturday afternoon and people would come and hear me play and they would really enjoy the music and clap and celebrate. But one of the things that they did is they sold these some kind of scratch and win things. I've, I've never bought these kinds of things. I'm not a gambler, but they would they would spend you know, well, they were mostly uh, people that didn't have very much money and they would go and spend 20 or $30 and then they would just sit there tearing and scratching and tearing and scratching these tickets. And I could never figure out why they were doing this. Well, they were highly motivated addicts. Right. Wow. Yeah. It must be so tragic for people that don't have much money to then be taking the little money they do have and spend it on that. There it is. Bingo. And then let's not mention another addiction that I'm seeing all the time. Sex. Do you mean porn addiction? It could be porn addiction. I have some patients that are virgins, but they're addicted to pornography. I have many, many patients who were heroin addicts or crack cocaine and sold their bodies so they were prostitutes, male and female prostitutes. I have sex addictions where people just every day have to have sex with a different person, a stranger, part of a really big, important event that they must, before the sun goes down or they go to sleep at night, they must find someone that they've never met before that they can have sex with. Talk about crazy. Wow. Let's talk about the porn addiction, because with the Internet, that's just so readily available now. And that's changed so much in the last 20 years. Uh, What do you think the damage is that's being done to our young people where so many of our young adolescent and teenage children are addicted to porn? Well, I'll tell you something interesting, Bruce. Here in Israel, there are a lot of religious people who do not allow their children or the husbands and wives to have smartphones. They have something called kosher phones that do not enable them to access to the Internet so that this is some measure of protecting the children from what's out there from pornography, from predators, from whatever 
could be tempting. I mean, read the Bible. We know that this is part of the uh, consciousness. The sexuality is a very, very basic need and a very basic drive. But the internet and the availability to all kinds of perversion is so readily, readily available. It's terrifying. It will affect even, forget about pornography, talk about violence. Yeah. Talk about the games, the games. I mean, what is available today and very, very seductive is violence and sex. Oh boy, what has the world come to? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like, so is there scientific evidence and research to that explains the kind of damage that is being done through pornography? I'm sure there is. I'm not up on the statistics or I'm not reading the research. I'm doing my research right here on campus. Right. It's my life. It's what I do every day. There's a lot of heartache here. A lot, a lot. I would say at least 90% of my patients were sexually abused. It's another issue. Sexually abused. Either in the family or a neighbor. Mostly it's somebody they knew. Wow, 90%. I know I know my wife is a trauma nurse, a critical care nurse, and she says that when she's dealing with you know, people who have mental health issues or addiction issues. Again, she's saying like 90% of them have had some sort of, you know, sexual, well, just really sexual abuse when they were young. Sure, sure. And and often, Bruce, it happens that the adult or the older person that's doing this convinces you that it's our love, it's our love affair, could be that way. And then you don't tell about it because it's so confusing or it has a violent streak to it and nobody is going to believe you. So you have to keep your mouth shut because you're under threat that if that person gets told on, they will really beat you up and make life bad. Right. Yeah. So, so tragic. So tragic. You are a meditator and you meditate using transcendental meditation. Can you tell us about that? And, and I know you've been doing it for years. What's the difference between transcendental meditation and other kinds of meditation? Well, there's meditation where you're meditating on your breathing. So you are mindful of the air going in and out of your body. It's going through your mouth or your nose, and that's it. And you're breathing in and out, and you're noting it. Transcendental meditation occurs when you reach a mind state where you are not rhythmically, but repeating over and over again a word. It's called a mantra in Sanskrit. I've been saying the same word every day of my life for 47 years. Wow. And when you note in a mindful way, Bruce, in a mindful way, when you realize you're writing a letter or having an imaginary conversation or you're hearing your words 
you go back and say your mantra. The mind normally is filled with thoughts and mental arguments and their language. They're very, very language-based. And the rule of the transcendental meditation is the moment you notice that you're all chattered up, just without feeling ashamed that you've wasted your meditation, go back and say your mantra. That's what transcendental meditation is. And ultimately, hopefully, you will reach such a state of altered consciousness that you transcend. You transcend thought and you're in another space entirely. And tell me how you feel that's benefited you in your life. Oh, I don't know how to explain psychophysiologically how it works. But what I do know is it made me more focused. It made me more relaxed. It made me more happy, more accepting, more confident, more sane, more loving, more compassionate. I also learned 40 years ago an extra part of the meditation called the Patanjali Sutras. And those are mantras. It's like 20 mantras. Uh, what I can also tell you vis-a-vis -vis meditation is that I invented a system where I'm meditating and speaking, and I call it guided thinking. I am inspired by being in my altered state, and I have you in an altered state of consciousness where you are accepting what I'm suggesting rather than what is she talking about? It's impossible. Never. It's going to happen. Never. You're in another state where you, the client, the patient, whatever, you're in a place where you're buying what I'm selling. And it's called guided thinking. Guided thinking. It occurs when I'm meditating and talking. So my voice changes. Fascinating. And how do we learn more about guided thinking? I write about it in When Sane People Do Insane Things. Okay. What insane people, when insane people do insane things is my gift to anybody who reads it, all the techniques I use, all the things that I've learned, all the things that have been very useful in helping lift the spirit of humanity wherever I get a chance. Right. And I see your books are right on your website at lacats.com. Your books are right there available. Yeah, sure. People say they're wonderful. Lucky me. Yeah. Well, it must feel good to have shared with the world this way so that other people can benefit. It's, it's just God giving me opportunity after opportunity. When I went to China and Turkey and taught there, people were very, very excited and very receptive to all of this stuff. And they brought it home to their villages, cities, wherever they came from. I remember on the last day in Beijing at the medical school, they handed me a map of China and they showed where each of them had come from on a train and where they were going back. 
So interesting. How can people learn TM? How can people learn transcendental meditation? Well, maybe I'm going to get sued if I tell this, but I do my own teaching to my patients. Well, hell, give it to them for free. They don't have to go through what I went through, which was expensive and lengthy. I adapted my own spin thing on it and give it away. Give it away. Pay it forward. Remember that wonderful movie? When I've, when I've searched for this, I found that it is quite expensive. I know. I mean, part of the education that I went through, actually, my mom even did the course with me, is um, you saw many, many videotapes of the Maharishi Mahasyogi teaching about bliss consciousness and all these wonderful things. It was very, very valuable and very interesting. But in my particular relationship with the people I'm helping, I give them the abridged version and it helps. Mm. They ask all the time, oh, Dr. Ellie, Dr. Ellie, can we please meditate before we start to work? And I do it with a room full of people. And how long do you meditate every day? I meditate every day 20 minutes. And when I'm doing the guided thinking, sometimes it could be hours. There's one person after another. I'm meditating while I guide their thinking. So I get more benefits. What's the biggest fear you have in your life, Dr. Katz? Going blind. Is it? Yeah. Or maybe getting stupid and drooling. Mm -hmm. Or I have 14 grandchildren and maybe, maybe they, I wouldn't live to see them grow up enough. Right, right. But I'm not really concentrating on my death. Obviously, I'm going to die. It's privilege of all mankind. Everything that lives will die. I'm 70 years old, Bruce. I don't know about you. you. Yes, sir. Ah. Nobody believes it, but trust me, it's true. I was born in 48. In 48. And and you're going to continue working at the facility where you work, right? Uh, yeah, I sure You love it, so. don't you? I love every time I come here. I'm here right now in my office. My office is just lovely. I'm looking out on a gorgeous view of the hills and mountains. My husband is a sculptor. He sculpted all over here. It's just breathtaking. It's uplifting. And look, I carry the message that change is possible. I know I change, so you can change. Well, I've heard that Israel is beautiful. I've never been there. Oh, the Holy Land. I mean, it's special to all monotheistic religions. Think about it. The Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. It's right. precious to all of us. Right. And we should all live in harmony. I'm waiting for the limo to pull up and let them give me the opportunity to settle peace in the Middle East. Mm. Wouldn't that be great? Uh-huh. Beautiful. <laughs> Dr. Katz, as we move forward, I'd like to ask you five quick answer questions. So Oi. just 30 second answers are perfect. The first uh -oh. one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? 
my father. Uh, and how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Keeps me sane. If my emotions are balanced and I stay optimistic, I'm sane. That's what I'm mindful of ensuring my good mood. That's where my hope and enthusiasm lie. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness, Dr. Katz. Well, I use it a lot. I teach people to pay attention to their breath, that if you're terribly upset, you may not be doing anything but holding your breath. Or if you're feeling hysterical, you could be hyperventilating. Just ride the breath. Slow it down. You can't in simultaneity be nervous and relaxed at the same time. I love how your book, When Sane People Do Insane Things, offers the reader an opportunity to help themselves to move forward. Now, I haven't read this book yesterday, The uh, or I was just going to say our interview is just scheduled, and then all of a sudden here we're jumping on and I haven't read your book, but uh, I think it sounds like an amazing book. Are there any other books that you would recommend that are related to mindfulness? Uh well, of course, Peace in Every Step or Peace is Every Step. I read that years ago. It's not, it's not my thing necessarily, but being mindful is gorgeous. Being mindful of what you're saying, what you're doing, how you're reacting, what's festering. You need to be mindful or you fall asleep at your psychic wheel. And when you fall asleep at the wheel, Bruce, could have a bad accident. Right. Uh, I always ask, are there any apps that you recommend that can help people with this? Now, maybe it's a website or maybe it's some kind of music or something like that. Is there anything along those lines that you recommend? Not that I'm aware of. It's not something I do, but sure. I know it's out there and I'm so grateful that it's out there, irrespective of how you get to a good place, get to a good place. That's what right. all I care about. And if I'm part of the vehicle that helps you, goody. If somebody else gives you a good suggestion, go there and try it. There's music, there's guided meditations. All of that is available. I'm not in competition with it. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you today, and you've certainly done wonderful things to help people in the world. And again, I'll just repeat, your website is elliecats.com, E-L-L-I-E-K-A-T-Z.com. So check out the website and the beautiful things you do for the world and your books are all on that website. Thank you so much, Dr. Katz, for being on the show today. Thank you, Bruce. You're a lovely, lovely human being. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye and now. And I will say, I will say shalom, which means hello, goodbye, and peace. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash 
whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, Awaken with Focus, a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. You can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awaken with focus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.